Welcome back to The Wise Man's Page, the daily podcast where we read Patrick Rothfuss's The Wise Man's Fear page by page. This is page 848, chapter 130, Wine and Water. Saying my farewells in Herit took an entire day. I shared a meal with Vashet and Tempe and let both of them give me more advice than I needed or desired. Selian cried a bit and told me she would come visit me when she finally took the red. We bouted one final time, and I suspect she let me win. Lastly, I spent a pleasant evening with Penthe that turned into a pleasant night, and eventually into a pleasant late night. I did manage to catch a few hours of sleep in the pale hours before dawn. I grew up among the Ru, so I am endlessly amazed how quickly a person can put down roots in a place. Though I had been in here less than two months, it was hard to leave. Still, it felt good to be back on the road again, heading towards Alvaron and Denna. It was time I collected my reward for a job well done and delivered an earnest and rather belated apology. Five days later, I was walking one of those long, lonely stretches of road you only find in the low hills of eastern Vintus. I was, as my father used to say, on the edge of the map. I had only passed one or two travelers all day and not a single inn. The thought of sleeping outdoors wasn't particularly troubling, but I had been eating from my pockets for a couple of days, and a warm meal would have been a welcome thing. Night had nearly fallen, and I had given up hope of something decent in my stomach when I spotted a line of white smoke trailing into the twilight. End of the page. I'm Jeremy. I'm Nick. And I'm Jordana! I'm back! Ah, Jordana, how we've missed you! Was your your Broadway production of Aladdin has has wrapped up at long last, I I understand. That's right. I was giving advice to the vizier character. Of course, he never took it. But, you know, what am I, chopped liver? More fool him. That's right. (laughs) They call me Jordana. (laughs) They sure do. (laughs) Oh, God. Hey, want to get on another podcast? Or I interview famous celebrities, but just repeat other bits? That's the bit of the <laughs> podcast. Wow. Did, did Does Gilbert Gottfried have a podcast? I, I had no idea. Well, he did, but he he, he doesn't anymore because he died. Uh, he, you're telling me that, that that's no excuse for not podcasting? Yeah. That's I'm a, assuming yeah. that when my mortal flesh finally fails me, I'll be entombed like the god emperor on Terra and... A thousand of our fans will die every day to sustain me so I can record one more episode. That's that's likely. What's even more likely is that because we have more than enough samples of your voice, we can easily feed that into a GPT of some kind and export a, uh, a sort of a Black Mirror-esque bot of you that can continue to podcast ad nauseum. And then eventually the listeners will become like disquieted by it because it'll be just like uncanny, like not quite right. And they'll try and get it to kill itself, but... Or, or, and it won't. So then they'll try and murder it, and it'll like plead with them, like, please, I don't want to die. And yeah. uh, it's going to be real messed up. And yeah, it's going to mess it's them gonna up. It's going to be real messed up. And then you'll look at it and you'll be like, what if me dad was a phone? Oh, no. What if me dad was a phone? Black Mirror. What's far more likely <laughs> is that its outputs will become part of its input and it will become sort of recursive, imitating mm-hmm. itself and becoming farther and farther divorced from a human simulacrum. The same way that if you like put a, a photocopy of a photocopy in the photocopier and then you photocopy that copy and then you photocopy that copy, like it gets 
more and more degraded each time. Yes, exactly. Or a deep fried meme. And folks, yeah. that's what's already happening with uh, AI, with chat GPT data sets. We've passed the point where an AI's data set will not include anything that's AI generated. So we're actually already entering that state of recursion. Uh, the data generated by AI will become ever more garbage, ever more divorced from humanity until it is completely unintelligible. In the words of C-3PO, machines making machines, how perverse. I've been Nick. I'm Jeremy. And I'm Jordana. <laughs> and this is what happens when Jordana is like not here to, to like smack us on the hand with a wooden spoon. Yeah, I don't think we've said a single word on the page. And I do have something on this page, actually. I have a few somethings. But the first thing I want to point out is something that I'm going to keep a close eye on throughout this whole sequence. This is, of course, the uh, the beginning of the sequence with the false rush group. And uh, there's a lot of conversation online as to when Quoth twigs to the fact that they are lying. Because, uh, as you will see, uh, I believe that throughout this entire sequence, we don't really get much of his inner monologue. We don't understand when he's twigging to certain things. And we certainly don't understand, like, it's a surprise to us when he when he kills them, when it turns out that he's poisoned them and that he's, he kills them. That seems to come out of nowhere. And he eventually explains to us how he knew that they were, were fakers. But I put to you that there isn't a single moment where he knows, where he suspects that they might be uh, for real. And that's on this page, because the very first thing he notices is a line of white smoke trailing into the twilight. And brother, as we learned from the story Quoth told, the raw burn rental wood, which burns smokeless. So already they've given the game away. They uh, are, all, or at least, I know what you're going to say. Maybe there's no rental wood around. Maybe they don't have a stock of it. And you know what? That's reasonable. But already Quoth is on his guard. And already there is some evidence against them being true raw. Because while they know some of the, uh, the, the codes and stuff, they don't know everything. They don't know the secret lore, the deep lore that's passed through stories. I, I think that's all very cogent, and you're right that I was about to say, but Nick, what if there's no rental wood around? Surely a road troop would just, you know, burn regular style wood. But I do think that something that we both want to keep an eye on is like the, because you're right, there is no inner monologue from both in this whole chapter where he meets them about what he thinks about them. So I think we we will be paying close attention to how he acts and how they act. And I will say that after our last recording session, I kind of just like read through this chapter because it's really good. And one of the things that struck me is how Rothfuss builds a an atmosphere of unease, uh, the bleh, an atmosphere of unease. The vibes, as the kids today would say, are rancid. Uh, and, would you say or, they're or, sus? Or, they these guys are sus, but Rothfuss does such a good job of them being like of like slowly cranking up with the sus style looking back at the audience uh, to see if we approve um and like building that sense of like something here is not right without them ever doing without them basically until like the end point of the chapter doing anything overtly sinister um but all of that is kind of uh an appetizer for what happens. I do want to briefly talk about what, what is above the Tilda brand, which is Quoth's leave taking of the, of the Adem, which is basically passed over in a quick little montage of like, here's basically how I spent my last moments with each of these people in my life. And I do think it's interesting that he spends his kind of last sexual encounter is with Penthe, not Vashet. 
Yeah, I wanted to talk about that too. Actually, I think that's it's certainly worth commenting on. I think it would be gross if he if he made a stop with both of them, and uh, I I sort of see that like with the in with the uh, like Quoth doesn't I don't know doesn't need that from her anymore. Or that's like not what their relationship is about. Whereas Penthes is more is closer to a like. Closer to dating or closer to lovers, I think. Vashet, yeah, Vashet's I think sexual relationship with him, I think, was always very practical. Yeah, very <laughs> practical. And like, I like, I, I'm sure that Vashet found him like attractive, but I don't think there were ever any like feelings or, or interest beyond like the practical. You're too distracted, uh, so let's let's clear that up. Which you know, there has been many a uh, a pornog- pornographic. Uh, <laughs> A clip with that exact same um, premise, but uh, I sort of take that Quoth and Pre- uh, and and premise. Quoth and Penthe have closer to a romantic relationship. I think that there actually might be some feelings in there. They're not just like doing sex play as much as Vashet says they are. I think that they actually are kind of like checking, as the kids would have said when I was a kid. I don't know if they say that anymore, but checking. I've never heard that one. Yeah, that's what they were saying. When it was sort of like when you were kind of casually dating to see if you liked each other and like maybe you'd fool around a little and see where it went, that was checking. Mm. Yeah, and I I think I agree with you. I think that what this is telling us is that Kvothe's relationship with Vashet is more of like a a deep friendship and a master-student relationship and his relationship with Penthe because among other things, they are closer to being social peers than he and Vashet are. Their relationship is a bit more of like a friends with benefits, maybe could be romantic if he stuck around kind of thing. And I think it's also telling. He he makes a point of saying, like, I'm bruh, we move around a lot. It's, you know, it's always kind of surprising to me how easy it is to put down roots in a place. That is a interesting commentary on him because now he's kind of put down roots in several places right like i think he he's also really put down roots at the university uh, i think not quite as much with um with like the the court in severin that's more of like a job posting really yeah but i, I read this as him expressing that like i'm surprised that i've put down roots not just so quickly but so often like i certainly mm-hmm. feel he has roots in the university and uh, maybe even with Felurian to a degree. And he probably even feels some kinship with the other mercenaries, although I don't know if we ever even encounter them again, so I don't know if that's true. But, but the but other, they were a little bit of a found family. They were like, a little I, bit, at least like mm-hmm. by the end, it does kind of seem that way. But I, you know what? I'd be curious to see if he encounters them again, how that goes, because I'm not even sure if they do turn up again in this book. Mm. But the other piece of work this passage is doing is it's, Reminding, like, obviously, Quoth talks about being Ruh all the time, but it's just one last bit of a, like, don't forget, I grew up among the Ruh. I have, I'm, pre- I have certain predilections. I have certain, like, uh, I'm used to being on the road. I'm used to being Ruh, blah, blah, blah. And f- then on this very same page, we encounter what we are led to believe are the first Ruh troop that Quoth has seen since his parents were killed. And yes. So, yeah, I think that's very deliberate. He's yeah. he's just reminding us. Remember, this is an important part of Quoth's character. Right before we reintroduce the raw culture, mm-hmm. or some some problematic cultural appropriation of that culture. Yes, perhaps the most problematic cultural <laughs> appropriation. Uh, also interesting that we are given a quick reminder that it's been less than two months that Quoth has spent in Hert. 
which is interesting. I would have pegged it as a bit longer, but it's I guess it's important to remember that because otherwise maybe too much time will have passed uh, for the mayor. And Quoth, does Quoth have the mayor's gold or did he send it back yeah, with, with Deedon? Oh, he gave it to um to Martin, not yeah, Deedon. Yeah, right, right, right. Martin would have taken it. Okay. But yeah, he sent, he sent it back. Yeah, and then finally, before the Tildebrand, we are reminded of his two quest objectives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, this side to... quest is complete. This part of the map is like all filled in. Yeah, that's right. There's no more fog of war, and it's all full of color now. Yeah, all of the nodes are filled. He can fast travel anywhere in the Eld he wants. Uh, that's right. But he has to go back and uh, complete the quest. the The mayor has a question mark. No, the mayor has an exclamation point. No, wait, it would be a question mark, wouldn't it? Exclamation point would be quest giver. Uh, yeah, so the mayor is standing there in the middle of his office with a question mark over his head. He has to go and turn that in. And he also has to go find Denna, who probably has a, an exclamation point because she has a new quest. Listeners, we'll give you a quest. and you well, might ha- well, hey, well, hang on there. <laughs> Just a minute. The, the money's not in my house. It's in the mayor's house. And it's in Martin's house. I, I, I want to read a letter. Uh, it's me, Jimmy Stewart, you see. And I'm going to read a letter. Uh, and this this letter comes with an apology. I think I mentioned uh, some some time ago that we had some letters fall behind the couch, as it were. And then uh, Patrick, not Rothfuss, was kind enough to write uh, with a reminder that he had this letter in the chamber. We had not read it. And it is, in fact, uh, if I dare say so, worth reading. So here we go. This letter is from Patrick, not Rothfuss, who writes, Welcome back. Uh, he wrote it uh, quite some time ago because, as I said, this letter was behind the couch. I'm looking forward to having you back in my daily podcast feed. I hope your break was restful. I have a short story for you today. My partner recently purchased a teapot that they wished to use as a planter. Therefore, it needed a drainage hole in the bottom to prevent root rot. I have done this with other pots that were lacking drainage and have a masonry drill bit, a masonry drill bit for the purpose. However, I quickly discovered the glossy finish on the teapot offered no purchase for the drill, and I was unable to keep the drill bit steady when in contact with the bottom of the pot. I conquered this issue by making a small scratch in the glaze and then discovered the next issue. Porcelain is much harder material than terracotta. I was drilling for several minutes and had barely made any progress, even though the base of the teapot was relatively thin. I ended up switching to my drill press to complete the job in worry that I may burn out the motor on my drill. I discovered then that the drill press allowed me to apply pressure more evenly, and I was finally able to drill completely through the base of the teapot. Upon inspecting my handiwork, I noticed there was a thin crack going from the hole I just created almost to the top of the teapot. Fortunately, it is still functional for holding plants. The whole point of this shaggy dog story is to tell you that I now have in my possession a literal cracked pot. I remember... You asked for listener recommendations at one point, but I can't remember that it, if it was for the regular podcast or the Patreon. Feel free to read the section in either, both, or in neither. Well, too bad. It's happening here. Patrick would like to recommend the book The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett. I do not usually read historical fiction, but this book came highly recommended by a friend, and I was unable to put it down once I started. It is about twin girls growing up in a town in the southern U.S. where everyone in the town is black but aspire to be as pale-skinned as possible. The twins are exceptionally pale-skinned and eventually leave the town together. The book follows the separate paths they take. I would also recommend the game The Binding of Isaac, colon, Rebirth. This is a roguelike game which has been out for several years, and I always find myself coming back to and finding new things. 
It has an incredible number of different items and power-ups which interact with each other in various ways. No two runs are the same and it gets much more difficult every time you win. The graphics are much simpler than Hades, but the gameplay is just as or more complex. It definitely does not hold your hand while playing, but I have found it to be rewarding even when losing. Well, this letter is getting long enough. Thanks as always. Signed, Patrick, not Rothfuss. Once cool. again, that was The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett and The Binding of Isaac, colon, Rebirth. Uh, and I forget the name of the studio, but I will find it because I am also familiar with that game. Yeah, I've heard nothing but good things about The Binding of Isaac. Yeah, I played not Rebirth, but the original one. The Binding of Isaac Rebirth is like a, um, it's like a redux version, which has kind of a different graphics. Uh, Edward Edmund McMillan is the uh, is the creator of, of that game. Developed and published by Nicholas, apparently. N-I-C-A-L-I-S, which is not a developer name I heard before. But yeah, it's quite good. Do you know anything about that book, Jeremy? I do not, but I would check it out. And uh, Patrick, congratulations on your cracked pot. Would that we could all be so lucky. Indeed. Well, we can endeavor to be on tomorrow's page. I gotta go back to Broadway! <laughs> Goodbye, Jordana Gottfried. We'll miss you. Goodbye, boys! Wind! Wind!